how does your biology impact your intuition? How can an understanding of neuroscience help you be a better leader? And what can a brain scan tell us about depression? Answer is, it does, it can, and a lot. Sylvia Damiano is a self-described part Gloria from Modern Family and part neuroscientist. And if you think that would make for an awe-inspiring combination, it does. She has spent her career immersed in getting to grips with how our brains work, how they can bend and reshape. And more recently, she's taken this deep understanding and applied it to the modern world of leadership and influence. What this has resulted in is a new view on leadership, which instead of command and control, leaders instead now need to master attractorship which she described as developing the skills and awareness to invite rather than demand cooperation. Sylvia is also a TED speaker, which is a definite must-see, by the way, an author, and I was lucky enough to catch her after weeks of traveling between Australia and Buenos Aires, and we sat down to talk about how to rewire your brain, the importance of gut feelings, literally feelings in your gut, but more on that later, and how the beauty of language can compel a listener to act. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And if you'd like to learn more about this new leadership model, Sylvia has kindly given 15 Inside Influence listeners a 15% discount for any of their face-to-face programs, online programs, 15 for 15, listed in the show notes. So go and check it out. For now, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Sylvia Damiano. Welcome to the show, Sylvia Damiano. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for giving me a, a guide as to how to pronounce your name. Okay. <laughs> it's a beautiful name. I, I even attempted an accent with it. No, you did good. Thank so. you. Thank you. Um, before, we, before we jump in, before we jump in, there's a question that I always begin with, and that is about being an extrovert or an introvert and whether you, which one you consider yourself to be, which one you associate with. And the reason I ask that is I feel like there's a story out there that I can't be influential unless I am an extrovert. And, you know, that hasn't been my direct experience, but I'm doing this mini survey. I'm using my podcast to do a mini survey to see if I can bust that myth. So Sylvia, I am an introvert and (laughs) it doesn't look like it, but I am. And um, it may be very close to being an extrovert. However, um, some of the latest um, information coming from the neuroscience field shows that um, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that does our thinking behind the forehead, uh, has uh, thicker gray matter in the introverts. So there's a slight difference uh, in terms of how the brain of people are. Um, So it makes us more reflective and to think things through before opening our mouths. Um, However, you can learn to be more extroverted if you want to, because as we know, the brain is plastic. Um, So I have grown up (laughs) uh, thinking that I was extremely shy and very introverted, but you know, um, time tells me that uh, you can actually change your ways if they serve you better. That's that's fascinating. So you're saying that as an introvert, your brain is, is slightly 
it's slightly thicker. Certain areas are slightly thicker. The gray matter in the prefrontal cortex. And is there a difference for extroverts? There well, the, there's a physical difference uh, that has to do with the size of the amygdala, um, according to some recent information. So it could be, it could well be that people need to talk and they're more impulsive and they just jump into giving their opinion or um, and they don't think too much about it. So there is certainly a difference in, in brains. Well, thank you for indulging <laughs> indulging my social survey. <laughs> One for the introverts. Um, <laughs> so let's let's go straight in. You first caught my eye, I think, um, as part of Vivid. Mm-hmm. It's part of the Vivid Festival. And I passed your name to the producer because I just, there's something about what you do and, and the way that you do it that I find absolutely captivating. You take the field of neuroscience and you've just turned it into A, a plethora of information, but also something that I think that people can easily relate to. And that in itself is a skill. But the the main messages that I've I've got from you is that influence and leadership, and I'm going to be using those terms interchangeably, has flipped now. We're in a total flipped environment where we're no longer in a command and control type of influencing situation, and we need new skills. And so can your answer to that, I know, is I, I leadership. And can you tell me a little bit about that and where you see that going? Okay. So as we know, we have evolved from the industrial age to the information age to what I call the imagination age or conceptual age. And that requires a different approach, a different mindset, different behaviors to the ones we use to lead teams and to lead organizations. And one of the things that has changed the landscape significantly is technology, the new skills that the younger generations are acquiring and how sometimes Sometimes people who may be in a leadership position need to step aside and give the opportunity to the younger people to to lead a particular project. It doesn't mean that they have to lead an organization. However, now we know how many successful young entrepreneurs are coming, you know, uh, coming up, and um, they have a different way of uh, collaborating with others. They're much more open. They want flexibility. They don't like the command and control. Uh, so people who are of a particular age group, uh, they need to relearn how to be in this world of the imagination age. And what what's changed? Have, I mean, I'm assuming our brains haven't changed. Our brains haven't changed that much uh, in terms of the architecture of the brain for thousands of years. But there's a huge gap. I have this curve that I, I draw normally to explain that technology has had this exponential growth, but our brains haven't had this exponential growth. And there is a gap. There is a gap in how we process information, how we learn, uh, how we want to communicate with each other, how we influence each other. Today, we need to be able to influence people that live uh, on the other side of the ocean, uh, people from different backgrounds, um, um, countries, um, from different gender. And we need to be open to the fact that people like to do things differently. We all have a bias, whatever the bias is. And uh, the only way to be able to influence is knowing your own biases, um, paying attention to them, and and trying to understand uh, who is your audience and what they want from you in order for you to adjust your leadership style. If you don't do that, the only way is to go back to the command and control. But that doesn't take you very far in this era, in my opinion. And so what... 
what would you, let's just say that I'm in an, envi- in an environment as a leader and I can feel myself slipping into command and control. So just for clarity's sake, command and control would literally be um, volume. It would be, how would you describe a command and control? Command and control model? is, well, you do what you, uh, what I'm asking you to do simply because I say so. And I know better. Um, I see these behaviors happening still in many organizations. People that don't want to listen to the input of others. I had a client the other day asking me, well, Sylvia, if um, I uh, open the floor for people, for these young people uh, giving me their ideas, I don't know what to do with them. So I better not ask them. And that was very much command and control. I mean, the guy has been working for 50 years and he doesn't really know how to elicit the ideas, neither um, how to work with these ideas. And it doesn't mean that you have to use all the ideas of everybody, but just by asking them for their input, you are involving them, you're collaborating. And then there are many methods to filter ideas and to use the one that is the most effective idea. And so I'm used to using command and control. It's been a, a very successful method and it has been for the past however many decades and suddenly I can feel things shifting and my workforce has changed the the split age wise and my workforce has shifted the cultural diversity has shifted what are the top three things I can do that will actually help me influence to a greater degree? Well, one of the things is definitely to want to learn without the will to be open and to learn new ways of being. Um, you are stuck with your own neural networks. So you need to challenge yourself continuously. Um, spread the wings, um, do the Elon Musk thing, you know, try to get into different areas of expertise and just be curious, hang out around young people and see how they think. And uh, the other thing is ask for feedback about how you are coming across to others. So you can take that input and then reflect on it and then decide, well, this is not taking me to where I want to take my team or where I want to take my organization. So if you want to remain influential, particularly influencing groups that are very diverse or very different to you, uh, you need to do these things. To the flip of that, I'm... I'm a young person or a person doesn't matter. And I've got somebody in a position of authority who is very command and control. How can I work with that? How can I understand the science of my brain and their brain better to be able to work with that to get a great outcome? So if you uh, are empathetic towards them, you may end up being uh, more influential than what you think you are from your position. So going out there and actually trying to understand where it's coming from. I'm going to go back to your journey for a second, your your own journey with influence. We got into it very briefly before I press record and I, I cut you off rudely because I didn't want you to waste it on me. Um, you came to this country. Yes. And you you have said yourself that um, you use the Gloria from from Modern Family joke. Yes. That, that that was the way that you felt like you came across. Mm-hmm. But you found yourself in a position of leadership. Yes. How? What did you learn during that journey that led you on to becoming fascinated about the brain. Okay, so yeah, my story is a bit long, so I'm trying to shorten it up. I came to this country. I'm originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina. I have this accent I can't get rid of because I grew up and studied my first career, my science career over there. 
Uh, and um, I found a job as a general manager very early in my 20s uh, with someone from Germany. And I, suddenly I had to manage a team of uh, 50 people from different nationalities. I had no experience whatsoever, neither in management or leadership of any sort. And I was very friendly, but I couldn't get the things done until I started to, you know, develop some more assertiveness and more confidence. I knew what I was doing, but it was difficult to get the message across to others. So I had to work a lot on my communication skills and really trying to um, approach work uh, from a very collaborative, collaborative and inspirational perspective. I think that you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't have the emotional intelligence capacities or um, neither the interest to make people better than what they are or what they think they can be, uh, you are stuck. Um, you get stuck sooner or later. So I think that the best teams and the best leaders and the best organizations are those who continually evolve in helping people grow and develop. And um, most people focus on the short term and on the profits. But in reality, work happens because there are human beings behind it. So, um, and the other thing that uh, unfortunately um, I see in organizations happen is people are getting too stressed. And the moment you are getting too stressed, you limit your capacities. Um, so we need to relearn how to be more relaxed, more calm, more collected in order to be more strategic and, uh, you know, more effective in what we do. You, you mentioned being more collected as part of that. And that puts me in the frame of personal gravity. You know, you meet somebody and they are absolutely collected. Like they fully own the space yes. that, that they that they have. And how that ties to the first five minutes in a room. So, you know, your experience is coming in from another country with an accent, you know, looking the way you do, being the gender that you are, being the age that you were. You would have had that experience. And as we've discussed, I've, I've had that experience in a different way where you walk into a room and you can feel the assumptions kick in. And how do you collect yourself in that moment? Or how did you collect yourself in that moment to go, right, I've got five, I've got an initial five minutes here where they're going to, they've already made up their mind on some things, but I'm either going to reframe that or I'm going to help them make up their mind about other things. What did you do in those first five minutes? That's a very convoluted question, but to collect yourself in those first five minutes and reframe it so people could actually hear you and hear past their assumptions. Well, knowing what I know now about the brain has helped me um, in understanding that we all have biases, as I mentioned before, and trying to create commonality with the audience, uh, even if it's one person, if it's 500 people, is the number one step. So in the way I do it is um, I tell a joke, I talk about Gloria from Modern Family, that's one way. But I'm not thinking so much about me. I'm thinking about what is it that I can offer to the audience for them to relate to me. So the focus is not on my speech or on, or on me as a person. So not on your differences. No, no. The, the, the thing is, what do we have in common as human beings that they will open up and listen to what I have to say, whatever that is. You mentioned something that has, has been on my mind a lot recently, and that is followership. You talk a lot about followership. Uh, you mentioned Lady Gaga having 41 million followers, mm -hmm. which is enough to get her elected as, as the US president, which is either a terrifying thought or an amazing thought, depending on depending on your point of view. Yeah. Um, 
And that's been on my mind a lot recently, followership, because we've seen this, I have seen in my industry and, and you've obviously seen it too, this huge shift from people following brands to suddenly people following individuals. And you talked in your TED talk about the fact that we've moved from, you know, following creators and makers now. They're the people, and you mentioned about the imagination age. Yes. We're in an imagination age and we want to know about creators. We want to know about makers. Um, can you tell me where you think that that's come from? Because again, the brain hasn't changed. So what's the shift? So if you think about the schooling system or universities or the way we have worked uh, since the industrial age, it has been more about achieving academic excellence, um, you know, getting good marks, uh, doing establishing processes, change management processes, and getting the job done and making money. And technology has allowed people to become more creative, to have a platform where they could write a blog post or create a video and upload it online and for everybody to watch it. And that makes people think that actually I don't have to be Pablo Picasso or Frida Kahlo. I can, uh, you know, be creative and be imaginative and whatever comes to my mind, I can build it or develop it. And creativity is very soothing for the brain. Creativity is very healing for the brain. It accesses other circuits that we normally may not use because we are convinced that we can't be creative or we have convinced ourselves that we can be creative. So one of the things that I said to my clients um, is, you know, we have to work with the whole brain. Uh, We have to awaken as many circuits as we can because if you go out after work hours and do a creative activity or a hobby or something with your hands, that will energize you will, it will inspire you. You have built something and then you come back to work and you are very energized the next day. So I would say to anyone who is listening, really do something that brings you that inspiration, that energy, that happiness. I have seen some movements in America that, uh, you know, people get together, they organize a fair and everybody builds or develops something creative and it's growing. It's a growing movement and that's pretty amazing. Um, And we need to tap into that because it really makes us better as human beings and it makes our work more interesting. The thing about creativity is it enables, if you tap into your own creativity and then you share that, either with the people in your workplace or the people in your social networks or your family, whoever it is, it actually gives us more opportunity to connect with you. Because if you look at Lady Gaga, you know, we don't just follow her music. We follow her songwriting process. We follow what inspired her, what um, what she saw that became the muse for the next song. You know, it's it's all the things that make somebody fascinating that we want to follow them, mm. all the nuances of a person rather than going to work and being you know, command and control and work and then going home and doing an art project. Yeah, that used to work in the past, but this younger generation, they don't see it. Life is, they see life as a continuum. There's no difference between personal and working life. Um, They want to be connected to Facebook and they want to get inspired online uh, to continue doing their daily job. And that wasn't the case before. We used to say things like leave emotions at the door, don't bring them to the workplace. Uh, And that's not possible (laughs) from a human system perspective. We are flooded with chemicals uh, that give us our emotional makeup. So how can we leave emotions at the door? Emotions is the fabric, the very very fabric of of existence. Mm. Um, A life without emotions would be pretty boring. We need to learn to manage our emotions, but we can't delete them from our, our system. And so what have you learned about the management? 
Because we've all been in situations with somebody and we've probably all been that person maybe at some stage where emotions take over. And it goes from being an eloquent point, probably, you know, a very valid point to suddenly being this bigger than Ben-Hur and the point gets lost in amongst all the emotion and everybody just leaves the room going, that was, that was massive. How, How do we feel that rush of what I'm assuming is chemicals come on and circuit break that? Well, uh, there are many things to say about emotions, but emotions, if you look at them as information that is available to you, that informs you of what may be happening inside. So sometimes when we have a certain anxiety or tension, if we are in a meeting, pay attention to those emotions and just use it as little pieces of information that you can say, well, actually, why am I getting tense here? Why am I getting anxious? Maybe what is being said is something that my gut feels is not useful. And perhaps I need to articulate this and put it on the table to create a better, uh, you know, outcome. Um, So emotions are like a river. It can be too much. It can be too little. It has to have the right amount of water flowing through the river. And you balance that with what you think think is a rational process, which I wouldn't suggest that is a rational process because even in the prefrontal cortex, we have a lot of chemicals that can make us more empathetic or can make us, you know, add that little emotion that we need to the decision-making process. So I would say that awareness is the first step, uh, being aware of what you're feeling, have some introspection, allocate some time for you to think about what happened during the day to you. Uh, I had this situation, how did I react, what emotions I felt, what thoughts uh, I had and just follow that for 30 days and you will start to discover the patterns that uh, rule your life because we all have patterns. Mm. Some of these patterns become addictions and people do what they do simply because they are addicted to these emotions. Um, So you want to know which are your your addictions or patterns in order to break them. That's that's fascinating. So I haven't heard that before, that you can become addicted to an emotion. Yes. There are some people like, you know, for example, the I'm busy. And busy has become a mantra in society. Anywhere you go around the world, you talk to someone, oh no, I'm so busy, I have so much to do. Who wants to be with someone that continuously says that? It makes the person unapproachable. And if you were describing before being calm and collected and being there for you and paying attention, having presence, uh, that is exactly the opposite of answering I'm busy. Sometimes people say I'm busy because they have become addicted to that mantra so nobody bothers them. And that is not a very useful way to build relationships. So even if you can give someone your undivided attention for a minute, a minute is better than absolutely nothing. So what are the most common addictions? You mentioned being busy and I certainly hear. The workaholism. I hear that one a lot. I've I've tried to replace it in my own vocabulary with um, life is full. With limited success, I have to say, with limited success. What are some of the other ones, common addictions that we can maybe notice? Well, people are addicted to food. Uh, People are addicted to technology and not getting enough hours of sleep. And then they are tired um, without mentioning, you know, addictions to alcohol and Mm. drugs and medications um, or, you know, television. In terms of emotions, what are some emotions? Emotions could be anger. Uh, frustration. I get frustrated as soon as I don't get what I want. I chuck a fit mm. or I get frustrated or I get, un- um, you know, anxious and I don't think I can achieve my goals. Um, uh, maybe an- another addiction could be um, sad. 
uh, anything that doesn't go my way, I get sad, I get moody, I complain, I gossip about my boss or my peers. And all of these are um, effects that do not help you, don't, don't help you grow, don't help you be stable, don't help you be calm. Um, so what I'm proposing is explore different ways of responding to situations. And at the beginning, this may sound a bit difficult to do. Um, and people tend to use these terms of, you know, uh, catastrophizing or personalizing issues. But in reality, that's what it is. The moment you catch yourself gossiping about someone or complaining, maybe, you know, bite your tongue, uh, shift your perspective and think about something that gives you pleasure. And that will help you short circuit the emotion that is dragging you down. So you short circuit that emotion and eventually what that neural pathway disappears? Well, you replace it with something more useful. Mm. According to neuroscientists, one of the sayings that they use neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more you repeat a particular action or a particular emotion, the more those neural networks will reinforce each other. So sometimes uh, those habits are so old that to break that circuit is much harder than to create a new one. So the easiest way is notice what's happening to you and put your focus on something else that gives you pleasure straight away. And that will help you, um, you know, uh, break some of these patterns. And that goes back to what you were saying before about it being like a river. It so is. the water will flow to the yeah. to the pathway of least resistance. Yes. So the one, the trench that's dug the deepest essentially yes. in your brain. And remember one thing, the brain is designed to protect us, to scan the environment for, for danger. So we are going to look at the negatives much more frequently than the positives. So it takes an extra effort to shape your mind to look for the positives rather than the negatives. It's very easy to be negative. It's harder to be positive, but that's where the learning comes in. The learning of knowing yourself, the learning of certain strategies to help you navigate this gap. And if you look at the the people that we want to follow, if you look at the leaders that we would choose or the people in our lives that we think, actually, that person has had a real influence on me or is inspirational in my eyes, they're all people that do that. They're all people that choose the most helpful response as opposed to getting permanently triggered. Yes. Yes. So... And sometimes it requires that you change your circle of friends or you change your environment or you change the way you do things. It it may depend. But to be with a group of friends who are always complaining will make you a complainer. So are they helping you or are they, you know, hindering your growth? How is it? Talking about choosing, about actively choosing, uh, you... You had mentioned that you did a 365-day challenge, and that came about as a result of choosing, and this blows my mind, choosing to fly to America, also flying your children to America, to have your brain scanned and to see exactly what was going on in your brain. And I I, want to know the physics of that, but taking that information and then setting yourself a year-long challenge to try and reset some of those processes. Now, that takes choosing your response and choosing your ability to lead and influence to to a whole other stratospheric level, most of us don't even manage it in the moment, let alone on a you know a transatlantic flight. So I don't even know where to start. Walk me through what they did first of all, and then the decisions you made off the back of that. Okay. 
So maybe I want to go be, be, before that. And in 2008, I suffered from depression. And obviously, I've been in the industry of leadership development, teaching emotional intelligence for almost 20 years now. So I could not believe how someone that teaches this and knows this and is pretty aware, having done lots of uh, 360 assessment feedbacks and etc., um, could not control that process of feeling absolutely down and being on the floor and crying during the depressive period. So this is not just about what you know. This is about how you feel and how the chemicals in your cells, in your body cells, are experiencing depression. So after that, I decided to get my brain scan and um, I did learn that there was some extra activation in, in some parts of my limbic system uh, that could have been a consequence of you know the depression. Um, but after that, you know, they gave me a series of strategies and things that I could do to calm those centers that were more active than than usual. And uh, I, I, was, I will say confidently that I have conquered that. So the 365-day challenge, uh, which sounds overwhelming, and it was overwhelming because um, the best way for the brain to operate is to chunk down the challenge. I mean, 365 days is a lot. So what I did is every day I would take an action that would help me to recognize if I was feeling in a way that I really didn't enjoy too much, I would notice it and I would do that to create a, a different response, a different neural network. So I'm just going to interrupt you and just go backwards there for a second. So you you took the incredible decision to have your brain scanned. Yes. Can you tell me... How is it? <laughs> can you tell me specifically... What they do. What what they found okay. without, without sharing anything that you don't want to share. Yeah. But what did they notice? Because yes. I think that might be helpful for anybody listening to know how specific the brain can be and the, the yeah. specific consequences of things. Yeah, there are some clinics in America that have this protocol. They have been scanning brains for 20 years and they have a database of 83,000 brain scans and they are able to compare what happens in the different parts of the brain and what are the most likely behaviors that people will have if the brain is overactive or underactive. So they look at blood flow in the brain. They scan your brain when you are at rest and then they scan your brain again after a concentration task and then they are able to compare and to show you um, the different bits and pieces of the brain from limbic system to prefrontal cortex or temporal lobes or parietal lobes and uh, see the blood flow. And as I said, that generates either the normal activity or they can see if it's overactive or underactive. So in my case, there was an area of the thalamus and parts of the limbic brain that were overactive. Um, uh, but the brain is plastic, so it can change. So, so there was no medication that was prescribed? Was not in my case, no, no. Did they give you a, a prescription of activity? Yes, yes. Like from exercise, you know, uh, talk therapy. Um, uh, now one of the things they're using a lot is hyperbaric oxygen chamber, because the oxygen at a higher pressure um, really helps the brain to operate much more, uh, much better. Some supplements of things that are not medication, but you can take supplements to improve blood flow in the brain. So there are things that people can do in order to make the brain better. And uh, one of the things that I learned, and which is part of what I teach, is that um, everybody has some kind of uh, glitch. I call it glitch to make it uh, simple, but um, I would say that 125 brains out of 3,000 are really beautiful or, or good brains. So that's almost the anomaly. Yes. The, the perfect yes. brain is the yes, anomaly. Yes, it's the anomaly. Yeah. 
So why does that happen? Well, you know, there are many things that damage the brain from, you know, ac- accidents, emotional trauma, um, you know, hitting your head and you don't even remember that that happened. Um, medications like the wrong food intake, lack of exercise, negative thoughts can affect the brain. So th- these things affect the brain much more than what people think. So if we were to scan your brain, um, you know, who knows what we may discover. And I would perhaps- try to, try to <laughs> But it's, it's very helpful. It really takes your um, awareness, your self-awareness to a, a, a new level. And it's fascinating. I think it's, I think it sounds incredible. One of the most fascinating things I ever did was get my, have a live blood test. <laughs> Have you ever had that? Yeah, yes, you can literally see your blood, your blood cells test. moving. Yes. And it gives you a whole new awareness of what's going on in your body any yes. one given time, all the incredible processes that have to be just right in order for you to feel a certain way. Um, so let's move on to your 365 day challenge. What did you, obviously you had those recommendations. So you had a, a daily list of activities, I'm assuming, and you kept yourself on track with that over an entire year. Talk to me about, um, the results that you got from that? What did you see change? Well, one of the things that I, uh, one of the things that I undertook was meditation and I can see the difference between when you meditate and when you don't. When you meditate consistently, um, you are much more calm, much more alert. Um, you notice yourself doing certain things and you are able to stop and redirect your efforts. If you know, the way you're going is not going to serve you. So you become quite mindful about your actions and then you can respond to others um, more peacefully. Not that I get, I, I don't, I'm, fortunately, I'm not a person that gets angry or anything like that. I, I tend to be very friendly, but sometimes, you know, frustration can arise or, you know, you start to complain about how people react or, so that has dissipated um, uh, significantly, I would say. So that those are, and I'm very calm, I'm very collective. It, uh, most of the time. So that was the biggest shift. Yes. Meditating yes. regularly. Meditating and exercising as well and, you know, doing things. And on top of everything, last year I fell down one step and broke both of my ankles. So I ended That's up in hospital <laughs> for two months. And that put me again in a position of managing my emotions. So sometimes the things that happen to you in life that you think they are dramatic, um, you learn a lot from mm. those experiences. And I, I, I don't encourage people to have these events but you know if they happen to you how are you going to respond you know and although you wouldn't wish it on anybody you are probably one of the best people for something like that to happen to because you can look at it from the perspective okay if my brain is plastic if my experiences are completely within my control what do I, what are the facts? Look at it as a scientist. What are the facts? Go get my brain scanned. What can I do to rewire whatever has gone a little bit off here? And in doing that, then how can I incorporate that in what I do as my day job, the, the type of stuff that I teach? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I want to talk about intuition now, mm-hmm. because I know that that's a big, a big topic for you, that the, this new age of, of influence or this new age of leadership that we're coming into embracing our intuition is a big is a big part of that can you can you tell me more about intuition and its role well uh, intuition has always existed we decided to ignore it and um, many years ago i said that in the future intuition will not be a taboo world in the business world anymore a taboo world in the business world so you know, women are more connecting to intuition for whatever mechanism. 
than guys in general, but and it's interesting because we use different terminology. We we talk about our heart and our intuition. Guys normally talk about their gut feeling, but basically it's the same thing. And if you look at how we are constructed as uh, as a human system, you know we have our gut and our heart and our head brain connected by the vagus nerve. And this big nerve that departs is one of the twelve pairs of cranial nerves departing from the basics of the uh, the base of the. Um, skull, uh, it connects to the major organs. So now we know that the gut, for example, uh, perceives information from the environment well before the head brain picks that up. And uh, we have what we call afferent nerves and efferent nerves. So this shows that uh, the information from the gut and what it knows and what recognizes and what it learns travels in the direction of the head brain in the same way that the heart sends information to the head brain. So there are biological processes that explain why sometimes we have these gut feelings. In the gut, we have 100 million neurons. The gut is absolutely amazing. That's why it's called the second brain now. And I recently came back from interviewing the director of neurogastroenterology uh, at UCLA because I'm producing a documentary on leadership and neuroscience. And it's fascinating the things they are discovering about the microbiome and uh, its genetic charge and how it regulates many of the things we do without us even knowing about it. So in the next 10 years to 15 years, we will discover so much more about these interactions between the mind and the gut and these connections that it will blow us away. But in the meantime, what I normally recommend to people is follow your gut when when the gut information is very strong because you may be taking the wrong decision if you just want to analyze the pros and cons of a situation. And if you want to be agile in this world, you can't stop to gather all the facts and figures because by the time you came up with your decision, it may be too late. And if you look at the Richard Branson and Steve Jobs and some of these big guys, they really acknowledge intuition as a way to make decisions. And um, it's a big part of the lives. So what you're, what you're saying is that intuition isn't fairy dust. It's not. You know, we, I think, yeah, we, we've been brought up to believe that your intuition is really just this this hippie sense hmm. of, of, of fortune telling. I have a feeling that yes. something is going to happen. And what you're saying is actually no. No. It comes from a very valid part of yes. your of your radar, just yes. a part of your radar that hasn't been picked up by your brain. Exactly. Exactly. So all this immune system, hormonal system, uh, um, um, neurons in your gut, all of this is all highly connected. That's why it's so important to take care of your diet, what you eat, because a healthy gut will um, help us have a healthy brain. If you don't have a good gut, um, your brain is not going to operate very effectively. I hadn't expected to go here, but um, what would you recommend in terms of taking care of your gut then, if, if it's so vital to being able to make good decisions? Well, you know, the regulating, just in a couple of words, uh, making sure um, you don't eat things that can cause inflammation in your body and also that your body is more alkaline than acid. Um, so, for example, in my case, something very quick, every day I take a bit of bicarbonate soda or lemon juice uh, because even though lemon is very acid, when it comes inside your body, it becomes it helps alkalinize, alkaline your body. So those two things, I do it every day. Bicarbonate soda yeah. to be a better leader. Yes. That's that's amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> and so, how do I how do I tap my intuition more? 
you're saying that it's mm. it's going to be the key to decision making because the world's getting faster and faster. And by the time we've got all the facts and figures, it's it's way too late. So I, I hear it at the moment as, you know, a little whisper and, and sometimes a little whisper a little bit too late by the time you notice it. How can you start to train your brain to pick up as soon as that radar goes off? I think uh, if you are too busy in your head, you miss that uh, subtle noise, yeah, I think so. subtle voice that comes um, to you. Uh, it's very fast, very you know, very subtle. And um, if you are stressed, you won't hear it. And also if your gut is not working well, you won't hear it either in my experience. So you have to train yourself to become. And one of the the, uh, great um, strategies that I use, and I learned it from uh, Grant Sosalu, the author of the uh, book Embraining, is uh, to position your hands on your gut and close your eyes and ask your gut, I need to make this decision. God, what do I do? And just very quietly listen to what the gut has to say. Um, and it's almost like, you know, when you are very anxious about something, you will feel those butterflies in your stomach. And um, if something doesn't feel right and you're very fearful, well, that's an indication uh, to pay attention to. So I have a client, um, she's a financial planner and she has two uh, colleagues and um, they never believe every time she said, look, my intuition tells me that we shouldn't go with this client or we should do this or we should do that. And usually the time proves that she was right. So now she has an intuition board in her office. So when there's a decision to be made and she feels intuitively that they should go A and others say, well, let's go B, she will write it down. And then in a month, she has proven them that if she would have followed her gut, she would have been more successful in her decision making. probably a world's first empirical study on on intuitive decision making. (laughs) Um, You you reminded me actually of the conversation with my dad. Um, He he rang me, I can't remember what it was about, and he said, Jules, I've I've made a decision, and it's very Northern English accent, made a decision. And I said, oh yeah, what's that? And I can't remember what it was, but I remember what he said afterwards. And he said, I made that decision because um, your mum's always talking about intuition. And she she's usually right. So I had an intuition and I, and I made a decision based on it. And he was so pleased with himself. Oh, that's great. 65, <laughs> so pleased with himself that he you know had made an intuitive, an decision. intuitive decision. And he felt great about it. Yeah. I want to just touch a little bit on, on vulnerability. You mentioned um, you mentioned your own period of depression and, and where that led you in, in a massive strain of unique decisions, I think. Um, but it also seemed to take you from the research that I have done in another unexpected direction, which was poetry. And, you know, I have a, anyone that knows or listens know I have a, a, a thing about poetry and I've always had a thing about poetry. It being somehow a language that gets through barriers that other forms of language don't seem to be able to. And, you know, I have various theories on that. None of them are important today. I, I wanted to talk to you about how you ended up with poetry and what you found that it's done in terms of your own leadership and your own influence and your own brain health. <laughs> okay, well, one of the things I learned a couple of years ago was the study uh, done at the University of Exeter in London um, about what happens in the brain of people who are listening to facts and figures versus the people that are listening to metaphors and uh, nice words and adjectives. And uh, what happens is different areas of the brain uh, highlight when we use facts and figures, for example, only the areas of Broca and Wernicke, two areas that decode language, activate 
hate when we use very objective um, speech. When we use words like, for example, the singer had a velvet voice. Uh, that takes uh, that activates an area of the brain called somatosensory cortex, which is the the area that decodes um, what we f- what we touch. When I think of velvet, I think of my cat. I have a Devon Rex cat that has. You suddenly have a, a yes, visceral experience. You have a visceral experience, means. exactly. So, in the same way, uh, when you use poetry or metaphors or um, nice adjectives, um, the occipital lobe at the back of the brain that processes visual information will give you an imagery, or the hearing part of the brain above the, the right uh, ear, uh, the temporal lobes that process language will give you that information. So, there much more um, integration or many more areas activated when we use poetry, for example. So I think that we have become so um, rigid in the use of language. There are 2,000 words in the English vocabulary I I heard once that um, describe emotions uh, in English. uh, And people use probably 15, 20 words to describe their emotions only. And in reality, emotions is what brings people together, what makes people trust you because you are expressing things that will activate something in the other person. So we need to to expand our emotional vocabulary and be more vulnerable with how we are feeling about things. Telling you my story of depression or whatever I did with my brain um, makes me quite vulnerable at some level. But that's what people pay more attention to. And uh, if you work what you want to say in your head and what you're comfortable in sharing, uh, I think that that helps uh, humanity uh, to heal because it it validates what you are feeling. And it also makes you more credible. Yes. For me. It makes you far more credible because you have... You've gone past the theory. Yes. You've gone to the battlefield. You've you've got some scars and you've come back and you're able to give me a complete overview of that battlefield as opposed to a theoretical overview. Where yes. It's like giving me the lay of the land as opposed to just handing me a map. Yes. You, you can come back and you can tell me exactly yes. what it looks like when you go there and then what you can do after that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, we all go through ups and downs in our lives and we all have stories. We all suffer. That's the human condition. And we all love and we all enjoy. So it, it, it really uh, acknowledges what uh, is our makeup as human beings. And it doesn't make us wrong or right. It's, it's you know, it's acknowledging humanity and we need to do this more. The, the poem that you wrote, which was, I dream, one of the poems that you wrote, which was, I dream of a time. The line from that that um, that got me was developing. I dream of a time where people develop their own leadership, where developing our own leadership is essential for a better humanity. Now, you know, you say it much more eloquently than me. Can you tell me why? Well, I guess that what came to me in that moment is after working in leadership development for 20 years, I can see people changing. When I hear bosses or CEOs saying, oh, you know, we don't see people changing if we invest in leadership development, um, they are only looking at one slice of the pie. I see people coming into a workshop and getting out on day two or day three, sometimes when we have the luxury of running workshops like this or going through a coaching process, 
And I see people changing. I see it all the time. Um, they uh, increase their levels of consciousness. They are much more connected with themselves. They minimize the dissociation that occurs between, you know, my working life or my personal life. They become one. And that requires introspection, the right tools, feedback, reflection, a great facilitator. And, um, and I can see the change. And only by transforming individuals, you can transform teams and you can transform organizations. Without this process um, underpinning what you want to do as a business or as a society, you, are, you, don't, you don't grow, you don't evolve. And I absolutely believe that, you know, people have more leadership potential than what they think they have. And that could be a mix of developing your influencing skills, developing your courage, uh, your intuition, your capacity to imagine and be more strategic, um, understanding your wellness and your well-being in order to be your best so you can act um, and things like that. You know, I mean, I'm trying to summarize all of in, in a couple of sentences, but there's a lot of work that that we can do as human beings to personally develop. And then if you are an entrepreneur, a CEO, a team leader, or whatever you are in life, um, you'll be much more than just getting the job done. This is not about getting the job done. This is about knowing yourself and encouraging others to do the same. The, the poet David White, I don't know if you, if you know his work. Um, I heard him interviewed once and he said that human beings are the only creatures on the planet that can refuse to show up. And it always stuck with me. You know, no other creature refuses to show up, but a, a human, we can. we can. We can walk into a room and completely refuse to show up as ourselves. We can decide to show up as someone else. No other creature decides to show up as another creature. You don't see blackbirds showing up and trying to pretend to be a giraffe. Yeah. So... In that showing up as ourselves, you know, you, you claim your leadership, you claim your influence, you, you do essentially then have to show up. Yes. And you have to be comfortable with that. You have to uh, aim for authenticity because when you're authentic, that is very influential in itself and inspirational to others. And you have to know your ethics. You have to reflect on the values that you want to live your life by. And you, by doing that, you encourage others to do the same. Uh, when you start to hide aspects of yourself and or pretend to be someone that you are not, uh, that is a taxing exercise uh, that that comes up in the way of diseases or breakups or you know a, a, the wrong values in an organization and nobody grows out of that and we have a lot of that today we i think we have a leadership crisis we don't have enough leaders or enough people that inspire others and we need inspiration in our lives Otherwise, we stagnate, mm. especially in, in current climates. Yes. <laughs> so what's influencing? What or who is influencing you right now? I have never been a, a groupie type. I, 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 oh, you've missed out. <laughs> I, I just, uh, you know, uh, take bits and pieces from different people. Um, Mother Teresa for me was, you know, uh, uh, someone that I admire because I don't think I could do what she did uh, with very ill people. Perhaps I could, but I'm not sure. Um, Nelson Mandela has been a great influence. Um, I get inspired by looking at what Elon Musk is doing and how hard he works and what he has been able to uh, build in his lifetime. That's pretty impressive. Um, so I read a lot 
and um, I watch, you know, uh, some talks and, but most, above all, I inspire myself. I, I want to have fun when I work. I, I try to push my joy to the nth degree. I have a team of very young people around me and some other associates, but I love to work with younger people. They keep me young and uh, I crack jokes. I, I want to have fun when I do, th- and I do lots of creative things. Um, that that really gives me a lot of joy. And by me being inspired, I know that that has an effect on other people. So I work on myself a lot. I, th- I think you've just you've hit my 365 day challenge then, which is to be able to say I inspire myself. I am I am an inspiration to myself. I love that. <laughs> well, because you know what others can give you is limited to what you can grab from that person, but you can inspire yourself all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. A, a close friend once said to me, I was this is way way probably about 20 years ago, and I was single for for a period of time, and I was explaining to her what I wanted in a partner. You know those kind of conversations you have when you're in your early 20s over a bottle of wine. And I said, you know, I just, I just want a rock star. I just want, I just want a rock star to come in and take me away. And she looked at me. She's an amazing woman. Even to this day, she is an amazing woman. And she looked at me and she said, well, then why don't you just be a rock star for yourself? Yes. And I remember thinking, that's very deep and very true. And I have no idea why, why don't I do that for myself? I should really do that for myself. Exactly. And you're right. Be the change you want to be, you want to see around you. Mm. So if you go to a workplace where nobody is inspiring, well, you become the inspirational one. And now we know what's the difference between the brains of inspirational leaders and those who don't inspire. And that has to do with the coherence uh, in the right frontal lobes um, of the brain waves. And that gets connected to how coherent your heart is. So one of the things you can and do to inspire yourself is actually place your hand on your heart and make sure that you're really connected and that calmness will translate into into your brain so the more coherent your brain is the better you are in noticing what happens around you and you know being bringing up that joy in you and joy is a big driver of um, success I'm gonna I'm gonna come bring it to a close. Okay. Now I've I've loved every minute of it, but we're we're running out of time. I'm gonna close with the question that I usually ask, which is if I could give you five minutes and a stage and a microphone and in front of you I could put anybody that you would ever want to influence, what's the one thing that you would want them to know? I would probably want um those who have the luxury of having power or a positional power in the world to believe that the world can be better than what it is. And if we don't take care of the people that live in it and the environment, and uh, we try to be the best individuals we can be, um, we are in trouble. And I don't think that many people uh, understand this message. We need to think about the future generations and uh, we need to improve ourselves continuously. Now we have the possibility of doing that because we can understand how our brains work and we can improve our brains. We don't need to be uh, caught up by the drama that exists in the world. Uh, we probably need to change the focus of you know, where we put our attention, intention and energy. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so you. much, Sylvia. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you to you. 
Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes. And also don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an interview.